I invite you to find Luke chapter 5 in um, whatever copy of the Bible you have handy, whether that's something that's um, in your hands like I've got, whether it's on your phone, just find Luke 5 anywhere you can find it and uh, find verse 12. So if you're, if you're just popping in um, for a, a one-off experience um, of worship here at Prairie Hill or Maybe you've just joined us recently, or maybe um, your mind just doesn't work the way that it used to, kind of like mine, and you just need a reminder of what we're doing. We are spending a special season um, focusing on this idea of the kingdom of God. And most of us just didn't grow up learning about God along those lines or in those terms. For most of my life, and maybe this is the case with you, um, just hearing the expression kingdom of God would probably bring some kind of a, a blank stare and an idea of, yeah, that I'm all for that, but I really don't think I could say what that means. <laughs> what, what, is the kingdom, what is the kingdom of God? And if we open up the Gospel of Luke and just read straight through, we notice that that phrase is all over the place. In fact, we notice at a really key spot in chapter 4 that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. That was his main subject. Preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And we want to know, we're spending time to figure out what is the kingdom of God like? What does it mean? This idea that was the theme of Jesus' teaching that he majored on. What, what is that? So we're paying close attention to this idea and going pretty slow, honestly, to try to soak up everything we can about the kingdom of God so that we can live in it now and so that we can anticipate and long for and pray for its full Manifestation on this earth when Jesus returns. And one thing about the kingdom that we've noticed recently as we've gone through chapter 4 now into chapter 5 is that when Jesus goes about, when he's traveling around um, in Judea, in Galilee, all of the land of Israel, as he goes, he's proclaiming the kingdom in words. He's preaching. He's also picturing the kingdom as he goes. He's giving people a foretaste and a foreshadowing of what it's like by delivering people from all these things that are oppressing them. So things like demon possession and disease and chronic illness and pain. And he's taking those burdens and that oppression away from people, which is a little picture of the kingdom of God the, in the full manifestation in heaven in which all of those things will be gone. And so every area he goes becomes like a little picture of the kingdom of God. It springs up around him, and that's what we want to carry with us as we go about in the world that we live in. And so we've made it to the middle of Luke 5, and what we see happening here in particular, noteworthy about the passage today, thinking about the kingdom, is how by the time we get to Luke 5 here, the kingdom is now expanding into the margins of society. 
into the fringes. We're going to see the kingdom of God extending today toward those people who live as the outcasts and on the fringes, so to speak. Into the the darker places where people are typically unwilling to go. And Jesus is going to go there. And he's going to reach them. We're going to see the compassion of Jesus come through as we see him ministering in what we could call the margins or the fringes. And so what we have before us, friends, is the, the unique stories of three individuals that come into contact with Jesus. One who is unclean. One who is unable and one who is unloved. Someone unclean and someone unable and someone unloved are going to be reached with the beautiful and matchless compassion of Jesus. We're going to get to witness that beauty. And not only that, we're going to get to see the other side of it. And this is the other thing that Luke presents is how very costly it becomes for Jesus to live this way. It's going to be really beautiful. We're going to really love it. The other thing to pay attention to is that it's beginning to become costly for Jesus to do this, costly to his person. And so we're going to notice both of those things with the idea that we too can go and live that beautiful life as we extend the kingdom in Jesus' name and also realize, oh yeah, it's probably going to begin to become costly to us as well. As attractive as that life is, we have to understand that it's going to cost us something, okay? I'm going to read verses 12 through 32. It's a little bit of an extended reading today. I'm going to invite you to stand for it. If you're not able to stand, and especially for an extended period of time, feel free to just be seated, okay? But for the rest of you, if you'd like to, invite you to stand for the reading. This is Luke 5, beginning in verse 12. While he, that's Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have, ex- we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, I I pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus in our midst so that he will be beautiful to our eyes today, that our eyes will see what accords with reality. This beautiful life of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what we'll see and and pray for responses in our hearts appropriate to what we see. For we ask in his holy name, amen. Please be seated. First thing that we see is the compassion of Jesus for the unclean. It's verses 12 through 16. He touches and heals a leper. Think about the pain and the stigma and the loneliness of being a leper. Think about the deep, deep pain of being identified by your problem. Not seen as a man, but a man full of leprosy, as the text reads. That's the description we have of him in verse 12. Who is he? He is a man full of leprosy. He's identified by his problem, by his shortcoming. He's identified by his uncleanness. And think about what that can do to one's self-image when you live like that, and maybe live like that for a long time. Lepers were sent away. They couldn't live with everyone else, sent away even from their families to live in special colonies on their own. So people didn't have to look at them. So people didn't have to come close to them and certainly need not have them in their personal space and touch them. That's the message that they were told by society. We don't want to be near you or even with you, and we certainly would never consider touching you. And so the leper's suffering, think about this, the leper's suffering is really a kind of double suffering, 
Not only do they deal with the, the frustration and the pain of their actual ailment on a daily basis, but they, they suffer also in the soul from, from being a social outcast. And so really it's a withering away of not only the body, but also the soul. Isolation is horrible. Both the body and the soul can wither away. And some of you who are listening may not have to imagine what this is like because that may be your experience too, that you live with a label. You live with some label that has made you unclean in some sense to other people. It could be a label like felon or adulterer or dropout or failure or some other label. Maybe it has something to do with your health, your mental health, your physical health. In some way, you wear a tag that's made you an outcast from a certain group or maybe from society in general and Try as you might, you, you can't reclaim for yourself just that simple label you would love to have of just man or woman. You have this other adjective attached to your person. And for you, your suffering is a kind of double suffering because you endure the lasting effects of whatever that painful experience was. And you deal with the effects of how everyone else is dealing with it. And the, the distance that they have put between themselves and you. And so just notice, notice here, everyone, the beautiful compassion of Jesus for this man who you may share so much in common with. And listen, understand that a word from Jesus would have been sufficient to heal this man. Jesus sometimes did that. He sometimes healed with only a word. He raised Lazarus from the dead with only a word. He could have healed this man with only a word. He doesn't have to touch him to heal him. And he does. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And this is the beginning of a pattern that we see in Jesus of meeting the deepest needs of people. A need that goes deeper than the presenting physical need. He's meeting the deepest needs of the soul. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. And if you somehow wear the label unclean, if you've come to be identified by your problem, understand who Jesus is to you. He is the one who is not afraid when you draw near and doesn't put distance between himself and you like you feel like other people do. Not only that, he bridges the gap 
between you and himself. He stretched out his arm and closed that gap. I want you to know that that's who Jesus is to you. And he is the one who makes you clean. That your identity, whatever that uncleanness is in your mind of how you have become unclean, whether other people know or not, that is not your identity anymore when you fall at Jesus' knees and place your faith in him. Your new identity is in Christ. That's your identity. I am in Christ. You are new, completely new in Jesus, just like the skin of this leper. Pictured so well in 2 Kings 5 when you remember Naaman goes and washes himself in the Jordan and he comes out and his skin is fresh and clean just like a baby's skin. That's who you are in Christ and that can never change. We first of all see the compassion of Jesus for the unclean. The next, <clears throat> the next thing we see is the compassion of Jesus for the unable. This is Verses 17 through 26. There's this well-known paralyzed man. We've been hearing stories about this man all our lives. If you've been in church since you were a kid or you are a kid, chances are it hasn't been long since you've learned about this well-known paralyzed man with loyal and able friends who let him down through the roof on a mat right in front of Jesus. We've probably known about him for a long time. What do we see when we look at this man? We see this man and we think about the particular kind of suffering that comes from having to rely on other people to do everything for you. That is a particular kind of suffering. I don't claim to be real familiar with that kind of suffering. I've only known it in part, in a very small measure, but it's this the life you live that you can't do anything for yourself. You are never the helper. You're always the helpy. Always, always the pitiable one. This man, too, cannot own the simple label of man. He is rather, according to verse 18, a man who was paralyzed. That's who he is. He is a man who was paralyzed. He was known, known for his inability. Wouldn't it feel great to be known for your ability? Like LeBron. And like Tom Hanks. And like Nicole Kidman. And like Emma Stone. And like the Pioneer Woman. And like all these people that are known for their ability to do whatever. That's like what they're known for. They can do this really well. Think about people that have the honor of being known for their ability. And then on the other side, we have the kind of dishonor that one feels when they are known and defined by what they can't do. I mean, not only do they not get to be like the superstars and not get that kind of life, they don't even get what we'd call the normal life. They don't get to be like everyone else. They look on people that can tie their own shoes with envy 
And we take for granted the ability to take care of our own personal needs, to have the dignity and personal space to take care of our own personal needs. And imagine not being able to do that. Imagine just thinking, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful to just walk into the room and sit down to listen to Jesus just like everyone else? Instead of needing to have special accommodations all the time, that when I walk in the room, every time it's a big deal. And all the eyes look toward with pity. Wouldn't it be wonderful to not be a big distraction? It can't get much bigger distraction than being let down through the roof in front of everybody. Could I ever just be a, a normal member of the human race? Oh, to be a person first and not an inconvenience or a problem. Now, in a way, what Jesus says to him is a little bit mysterious. Jesus is presented with a man who has an obvious and overwhelming physical need. There is no doubt that the man is there in front of him with the hope that there will be physical healing. But instead of addressing that need first, Jesus addresses a matter of the soul. He announces to him, man, your sins are forgiven. And just let me offer this to you. I can't prove it. It's probably not even the main point. But it is here and it's undeniable. What does Jesus do? He treats him as a man first. He sees him first as a man with the condition of every other person in the human race, the need for forgiveness of sins. He does not immediately see a person with a huge, glaring, physical problem like everyone else does. He ignores his paralysis of body and he treats him as a man. And I just wonder how much it meant to him that when he met Jesus, Jesus saw him first as a man. Can you imagine every time you're presented before another person in the human race, all they can see in you is a problem. And he meets Jesus of Nazareth and he treats him as anybody else. And that must have felt so good. To not have someone immediately go to this huge problem that I have with my body. And as I said, I can't prove it, but I believe that Jesus ministered to his deeper need first. He calls him man.
He met his real human soul need to be treated first as a man and not a pile of problems. Who knows how long it had been since someone did that for him. Some of you know exactly how this would feel to approach how wonderful it would be to walk up to someone and not immediately have them treat you in accordance with your problem. I, I cried, and really the appropriate word is I wept all through my sermon prep this week, thinking of people that I know and love and millions of others who I don't know who have always lived with this deep need of the soul to be addressed and loved as a person first and not as a special case, not as a problem. Who is Jesus? He is the one who sees your soul first and meets the deepest needs of your soul. That's what he does for this man. It's not all that he does. He's going to heal him too. He was always going to do that. But I I believe he wanted this man to know first, I see you. Not your overwhelming physical need. Your body's temporary. Your soul lasts forever. Are you in the habit of seeing other people that way, Christian? I mean, when we meet people in the human race, they present all kinds of problems to us. Potentially, you know, physical problems, mental problems, behavior problems, relational problems, all kinds of people come in front of us. Are you in the habit of seeing a person first? That's what Jesus, that's the habit that he was in. And we're here to have that heart that was present in him. We're here to have that heart formed in us. The best image I can think of this week is, My heart is just like a pile of ground beef that I'm working into a hamburger. And I want that hamburger to look exactly like Jesus' heart. It is going to be pressed and molded and shaped into just the right shape. That's what I want for myself and what I want for you, is that we're here to have our hearts pressed and formed and molded so they look like his. And see people the way that he saw people. And of the many things that we can learn by studying the life of Jesus, this surely is one of the most valuable things that we can learn, is that his life is what a life looks like when your doctrine is perfect. Jesus' doctrine is perfect. He understands God the Father completely with no errors. He has the perfect interpretation of the Old Testament. He knows. His doctrine is spotless and pure. This is what your life looks like when your doctrine is pure. We may not know if our doctrine is 100% correct. I'm sure mine isn't. I just don't know where the errors happen to be. We may not know if our doctrine is perfect, but this is what we do know. When your doctrine is perfect, this is what your life looks like. When you understand the Bible, your life looks like this. It looks like Jesus Christ. You do what he did, and you see people the way that he saw people. We see the compassion of Jesus for the unclean. We see the compassion of Jesus for the unable Finally, we see the compassion of Jesus for the unloved. This is 
verses 27 to 32. Probably no one was more unloved than the tax collectors. That's not a surprise to you. Tax collectors were seen as completely unlovable. We meet this unlovable, unlovable Levi here, or Matthew, as he's called in other gospels. Jesus has reached the unclean, the unable. Now he approaches this unloved, this unloved and undesired person. And we think about this tax collector, we think about the stigma and the pain of being hated and written off because of your profession. When people see you, they don't see a person, they see what you do and write you off immediately. It's not seen as a person. It's a tax collector. And everyone you meet, all of the good people want to make sure that you know that there's a great distance, there's a great moral distance between themselves and you. As a matter of fact, they want to make sure you know there's a great moral distance between God and you. God is here, we're here, and you're down here. That's the message that they're given. This is how God feels about you. Until one day, God in human form walks by and says, I want you to follow me. That's what God thinks of this person. One day, God in human form comes by and says, follow me, I choose you. You, the unloved whom others have rejected, know this, you are not rejected by God. As a matter of fact, I single you out for special relationship and I choose you. Do you feel unloved? Do you feel unloved even by those who claim to know God? Do you feel unloved especially by those who claim to know God? Jesus is the one who sees you, who knows your name, who loves you, and who calls you. He is unafraid, and he is full of mercy. And he came to reach into the margins, in the dark places, in the deepest human needs, to go where no one else was willing to go, touch those whom no one else was willing to touch, and be with those whom no one else was willing to be with. kingdom of God is beautiful, isn't it? This is our king in action. And we see that what the Pharisees and the scribes, so the religious power structure, the Pharisees and the scribes, what they didn't realize is something that we need to make sure that we, are, we, we realize, and that is that we are all unclean, unable, and unloved. Unloved in the sense that we're separated from God by sin. And Jesus Christ comes near to love sinners and call them to repentance and restoration of relationship with God. Of course, as his students and worshipers, we want to go out among humanity and do the same thing. See people first, see a soul, and be unafraid to come close. 
And the last thing we'll notice, and we'll do this briefly, is that there is a cost to living this way. The Christ life is a beautiful life, but it's also a costly life. And Luke gets that point across to us, especially in the second and the third accounts, the healing of the the paralytic and the calling of Matthew. He shows us that um, comments start to be made and grumbling begins among the Pharisees. They're witnessing all this compassion that's being distributed and the response of opposition begins. These are just the leading edges of opposition. It's going to intensify. And as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to notice these things in more detail. We're just going to touch on it today. We're not going to talk about the nature of the opposition. We'll have more opportunity to do that. Today, we're just noticing that the opposition begins that there's a cost to be paid. Jesus begins to pay a cost, even in a very simple way, like we see after the healing of the leper. Did you notice that now he's really getting infringed upon? The crowds are growing. He's got to intentionally pull away. He's beginning to pay just a, a, a cost to his person. And we may feel that too as we go out and and minister. That's a a costly thing in terms of effort and exhaustion, things like that. But it intensifies and there are these things like questioning and grumbling. And let's just make two two closing observations about this cost, okay? And then we'll be finished. Two closing observations and points of personal application. The first one is this, is that Jesus will continue to pay the cost to love sinners. Jesus will continue to be willing to pay the cost to love sinners. We've got a whole gospel left. Just because the opposition starts does not mean that Jesus' ministry is over. He will continue to pay the cost, even up to paying for it with his life, with his body and his blood, to live this beautiful Christ life of extending the kingdom to sinful people. It's a sad fact of history that when you attempt to live the compassionate life of Jesus, you'll often face opposition. And that's not the saddest part. The saddest part is that the opposition often comes from people who claim to love God as as here. That was Jesus' experience. He was opposed not by the sinners, but by the people that claimed to know and love God. That was also the experience of his disciples when they took over the ministry after Jesus ascended. Now it's their turn. They're ministering. and They heal that man who had been lame from birth outside the temple. Acts 3, immediate opposition, not from the outskirts of society and the sinful people, but from the religious establishments. And if we want a present-day example for us, or at least something that's a lot nearer to our time and and our heart, just think about this, that if you lived in the South in the 19th century, and you opened up your Bible, and you saw, you know, the Bible seems to teach me that every person is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect, and that even studying a passage like this and how I should see their soul first, 
and how God is a lover of, of every nation and every tribe and every tongue. And if you took your Bible and then set it side by side with your experience and said, you know, I really don't think that we should be treating black people this way as property and mistreating them in so many ways. Something's not adding up. I feel like I need to advocate for more humane treatment and, and all, the, all the rights, everything that a human being deserves. This doesn't match with the Bible. And if you begin to advocate that at the wrong time in the South, you would put yourself squarely in the crosshairs of the establishment and even the religious establishment for advocating for compassion in the extension of the kingdom of God. it will likely always be that way. As long as there is power to protect and wealth to protect, there will be a cost to ministering the compassion of Jesus to the margins of society. And I just want you to know we just all need to take a deep breath and swallow hard and realize that that could be our experience as well where we will understand at some point that to advocate for the compassion of Christ will put us in the crosshairs of the establishment of those seeking to protect power and tradition and wealth, and we will have a decision to make. Will I continue to pay the cost, the personal cost, of loving people with the compassion of Christ? Or will I draw back? And praise the Lord that Jesus was willing to continue to pay the cost. The last point that we want to make. The first point is that Jesus continues to pay the cost of loving sinners. In spite of the opposition. The second point, the last point, is that as Christians, we must consider whether we are opposing the extension of the kingdom of God. As Christians, as myself, if you are a Christian, the question to ask yourself on the basis of what we have read here that we have to be willing to ask ourselves is this. Without intending to, am I opposing the extension of the kingdom of God because of our decorum and traditions and standards and fear. While claiming to love God and his kingdom, are we actually opposing the extension of the kingdom out of a desire to see our own decorum and standards and traditions upheld? Because that happened here in Luke 5. Jesus' ministry was opposed by people seeking to uphold their traditions and decorum and standards and power. We're not better than them. We might know a little bit more about Jesus, but at heart, we're not better than them. And so here's the question. Are, are we more likely to be found questioning and grumbling about what other Christians are doing or talking and eating with people that need Jesus? What is it more likely that you will be found doing? Questioning and grumbling about what other Christians are doing. Or sitting and eating and talking with people that need Jesus. 
That's a really hard question. And if that hits you right between the eyes, just let me tell you, that hits me right between the eyes too. Because I like to sit and question and grumble about methods and approaches and motives about how Christians are trying to do ministry. And spend a lot of time and energy doing that, which is better spent on building the kingdom. So even I need to ask myself, do I spend more time questioning the motives of Christians and grumbling and complaining about their choices and methods, or am I investing time in building the kingdom of God through calling sinners to repentance? Who are you talking to? And when you're talking, is it complaint or is it gospel? How are you using your God-loving energy? So much more that we could say on these topics. Luke is going to take us there through all the acts of compassion, all the opposition. We're going to get there. In due time, we'll get there. Today, we just rejoice that there is such a person in this world as the Lord Jesus Christ, who was not afraid to go out and minister compassion to the unclean and the unable and the unloved. And to him be glory both now and forever in the church and in both heaven and earth. Amen. Father, we thank you for your beautiful son. I ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters gathered here that the effect of the time we have spent is that the Holy Spirit would very gently and surgically take these things that we have talked about and use them to mold our hearts into the same shape as that beautiful heart of Jesus Christ, full of compassion for the unlovely. For we too have been very very unlovely. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.